0: So I get to talk today about one of my favorite topics, and following Jim is always a task because he's hysterical. Um, I am not, so I'll just pre-warn you on that. Um, But I get to talk about God's heart for the vulnerable and how that relates to mission. And um, when we talk about God's heart for the vulnerable and mission, there's so many different ways we could approach it, right? We could start in Genesis and work through Revelation, go from the creation to the restoration of all things, and talk about God's heart for the poor and vulnerable, There's about 2,000-plus Bible verses that talk about God's heart for the poor and the oppressed and the disenfranchised. And so that would take me about 12 hours or more. And so since I don't want to keep you here for 11 more hours than we have you committed— We're not going to take that route. Um, Or we could kind of go through Jesus's life, right? And the four gospels and unpack his heart towards the poor, how he centered his ministry and mission around the oppressed and the disenfranchised and the outcasts and how he went to and lived among the people who society discarded and didn't like. Um, And we could unpack what that would look like for us. We could also look at the book of Acts and the early church and see the ways in which they sacrificially loved and lived their lives uh, with just such radical generosity, always proclaiming Christ with words and living out um, a community that was so contrasting of the local culture that, that people, whether they believed in Christ or not, knew that they were Christians. And so um, I think this topic, one of the things I love so much about talking about God's heart for the poor, the oppressed, the vulnerable, and how that relates to the mission of God's people is I just think you can't get away from almost a page of scripture without sensing and seeing um, just the intertwined nature of how we are to walk with God, walk in the steps of Christ, and where that's going to lead us into, into confrontations with brokenness and pain and suffering. And that's where we get to be light and salt. And so today we're going to focus tonight, um, this last section, on one story, um, one of my favorite stories uh, of Jesus in Mark chapter 12. So if you guys have Bibles or apps on your phone, open up to Mark 12, starting in verse 38. And I want to kind of look at this through the lens of unpacking uh, the widow's gift and the widow's offering. So if you guys can read along with me. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. And they have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at the banquets. But they devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were being put, and he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few pence. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she has to live on. So let's just pray for a minute. Father, um, we thank you so much that we get to be your sons and daughters. What a privilege it is to participate in your mission, to be your children, to um, be a part of your family. God, That this beautiful creation and that you have uh, done such a good work in, and, and as we get to participate in uh, seeing things that are broken, restored, and renewed, uh, seeing dark parts of our city and world um, brought the light of Christ, seeing your Uh, Your son's name proclaimed um, in many ways, God, through depth and uh, lots of textures. God, the symphony that Jim was talking about, Father, what a gift it is to be able to be just a small, quiet note in the midst of this massive orchestra as we reenact the gospel story with our lives. God, we are—we fall so far short of being the disciples you've called us to be. God, we are so thankful for your grace and mercy and for the ways in which you shower us with your love and show us what it looks like to follow you, to be generous and to give all that we have to live on. So God, would you just help us in this next uh, remaining hour um, to open our hearts and hear from you what it is you'd want to say to us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so i'm going to kind of walk through this passage, and there's three different points I want to make as we look at the widow's offering. Um, I want to talk about what it looks like to learn from the vulnerable and when I use the word vulnerable, um, I'm using that word to kind of encompass people who are on who are disenfranchised, who are kind of put pushed to the margins by maybe society or kind of our cultural norms folks in po- who are experiencing poverty, oppression injustice right people who um, that In the stories, in the gospel stories, the poor widows, the lepers, the sick, right? The ones that ordinary people wanted to get through their day without having to encounter. In our city, our lives are full of walking by people, whether we see them or not, who experience very um, vulnerable situations in which they are more at risk of, the, of losing everything in their life. And so we want to talk about what does it look like as we look at and examine the widow's offering to learn from them. What does it look like to give like the vulnerable? You know, as we, as we talk about how she was so generous, she gave all she had to live on. What does it look like for us to have a life that reflects that? And when, then what does it look like to speak up for the vulnerable? So let's just start in this, this verse in verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were being put. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him. So the first thing that really stands out to me in this passage is Jesus' posture. You know, there's always so much intentionality in the ways he interacts with others. There's a reason why Jesus positions himself the way he does. Okay, he sits down. He watches. And then after seeing the widow give her gift, he calls his disciples over to show them. Jesus had just rebuked the scribes who honored and valued the people. He critiqued their long prayers that they had done to kind of show off. And then he sat and waited and watched for a true offering. So our posture to the vulnerable, when we're talking about what it looks like to be part of God's mission and to serve and love the least and the last and the looked over, our posture often, our first instinct doesn't look like that. Jesus was able to slow down long enough and to position himself in a place to be able to observe and learn from her. He sat, waited, watched, and then as this teaching moment unfolded, he very intentionally gathered his disciples and used her life to instruct them. So what would it look like to approach this question of God's mission and the vulnerable by first just kind of slowing ourselves down long enough to examine our own presuppositions and biases that often automatically place the vulnerable or the poor in a category that's out there? And we, those of us who are on God's mission, as over here, as though when we talk about bringing the good news of Jesus to the poor, we talk about it as though the poor doesn't, isn't full of brothers and sisters in Christ who already know Jesus. And so we're going to talk about what it means because there are absolutely the lost among the poor, and there's a lost among the wealthy, like every class, right? But it's, but it's so often, especially as middle-class Americans who have um, any sense of comfort in our lives, to talk about the oppressed and poor as though they are void of Christ. When the fact is, we don't see in this passage Jesus Jesus calling his disciples to go preach to the widow. He's actually calling them to come learn from her, for her life to preach to them. So throughout the scriptures, God is often using those who the world sees as least to teach and instruct his people. As we enter into this conversation, I want us to start by acknowledging that our own brothers and sisters in Christ are vulnerable. Most of the world, most of the church, even in Phoenix, is full of people, men and women, children, who experience adversity, pain, suffering, poverty. Okay? And we don't make, we're not different parts of the body of Christ. We make up one body. There's one bride. And parts of our body are being marred by systemic injustice. Parts are crushed By the weights of oppression, are mutilated by the bonds of poverty. And there's a special kind of posture we should take as God's people that allows us to sit and watch and learn from them what God is doing through them. Okay, David's gonna do this in Psalm 34. So if you guys can turn to Psalm 34, I wanna use this as an example of how God, again and again in Scripture, uses the poor to illustrate his beauty, and to teach us. So as I read through this passage, there's two questions I want you guys to ask. Ask yourselves. as I'm going to kind of read through it and try to pull these things out. The first question is, who is God revealing to himself to in this passage? Okay, so who is it that he's talking to? And then the second one is, what aspects of his character is he making known to his people? So there's these different vignettes in the verses and who who are those people and then what are the aspects of his character that those people are getting to see all right we'll start in verse 1 i will extol the lord at all times his praise will always be on my lips i will glory in the lord let the afflicted hear and rejoice glorify the lord with me let us exalt his name together i sought the lord and he answered me he delivered me from all my fears those who look to him are radiant Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Come, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. So in this passage, there's five or six illustrations of who God is encountering. Okay, the, the afflicted, the fearful, okay, and you can kind of circle those words in your Bible if you have a pen with you. The afflicted, the fearful, the ashamed, those who are covered in shame, the poor man, and the man in danger. Okay, and what happens to them as they encounter God? The afflicted, they hear from God and they rejoice. The fearful, has his questions answered, and is delivered. Okay, be ashamed. They look to God, people covered in shame, look to God, and now their faces are radiant. They are glowing. The poor man is heard by God, and he's saved. And the man in danger has God's angels set up camp around him. So do you think when we're talking about what it looks like to be God's people on mission, participating in his mission, loving and caring for the vulnerable, that our brothers and sisters who've experienced these types of things, affliction, fear, shame, poverty, danger, have anything to teach us about what it means to be faithful, faithful witnesses in this world? I imagine that this poor widow whom Jesus sat and watched is a woman who'd experienced each of these things that we just read about in the psalm. And when you've experienced poverty or great affliction or danger and you encounter Jesus in such a way that you are transformed, delivered, that you're no longer ashamed, your encounter becomes one the entire community around you can now look at and respond to God with worship. Okay, that's what this psalm is. David was able to call the entire assembly of God, his, God's people together, and they were able to worship. They were able to come and see that God is good because of the encounter of a poor man who was heard by God. Okay, when he's calling them to come and see what's good, who is he calling them to come and see? They're brothers and sisters who've experienced this encounter with, with their living God. Okay, and, and here's the key. Here's the reason why In this psalm, David's calling people to come meet and see God's goodness through these people's encounters. Because it's not just the vulnerable, right? But all humanity experiences affliction. And it's not just the oppressed, but all humanity experiences fear. And it's not just the marginalized or the overlooked, but it's human, right? Part of the fallen human experience to have to experience shame, There's poverty among the wealthy. But when you strip away the basic needs, and there is literally nothing to depend on but God, and God encounters you, oh, then we can call all of God's people to come and taste and see that God is good. And God does encounter these brothers and sisters, because God is a God of comfort and compassion. He loves them, and he shows up. And so I don't say any of these things to glorify poverty. Because we should never be okay with brothers and sisters, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, being left to be vulnerable. But where they've experienced the inhumanity of being unheard and encounter a God who hears, where they've experienced being overlooked or looked down upon or judged and mischaracterized and encounter a Jesus who sees them, then their faces become radiant. And this is something that all God's people can look to and it can deepen our trust, trust and dependency on God. It can fuel our participation in the mission that God has called us to participate in, to see um, as he it restores every part of, our, of his creation. But that can only happen if we're in relationship with each other. So as you think of learning from the vulnerable, I want us to start by identifying with these in our, those in our own church family, right? Within the Bride of Christ. Locally, as a local congregation, citywide, globally? What does it look like to consider Christian brothers and sisters who've encountered God in the midst of this poverty, oppression, and injustice, and think about the unique role they play in leading the people of God? Okay, we need to hear, sit, watch, study, learn from them like Christ did as he sat and watched the widow. Let them lead and speak and shape us to be the image of Jesus. And for those of you who are sitting here who've experienced exactly what I'm talking about, the darkness, the oppression, the injustice, the way to poverty, the shame of abuse, your encounter with God is not yours alone. It's ours. It's a gift to our community. It is not one that we should be shunning or hiding or wanting you to clean up clean up your life so you can look a certain way, right? We want, we need that gift to lead us and shape us and mold us to be the people that we're called to be. So for too many of us, though, we're not in deep enough relationship with the vulnerable to receive the blessing of friendships that help, that can help shape us and disciple us. The vulnerable are often taking the greatest blows for the sin of our entire community. And we are often blind to it Because we simply don't have enough relationships and friendships with these brothers and sisters. Okay, but then so, but it's not just brothers and sisters. So as a people of God, from all different walks of life, rich, poor, middle class, men, women, every ethnicity, every culture, we are a people who are called to participate in God's mission. And God is encountering every corner of this earth and has a special concern for bringing redemption and restoration to those who are experiencing pain and suffering to the poor. This means that the vulnerable also includes people who don't know Christ as their Lord. And this is where a lot of times I feel like God's mission gets turned into missions. So Chris Wright talks about that in the book, if you guys have gotten there yet in your reading, where he talks about mission versus missions. And it seems like when we begin talking about the poor and what it looks like to love our neighbors who are experiencing pain and suffering, we quickly shift from this idea that our identity as God's people is to love anyone we encounter, especially the least and the last. And we begin to have these debates where, we, where a lot of times I hear Christians talking about being cautious when it comes to discussing justice and mercy. And so talking about it too much perhaps may make us lose our emphasis on evangelism. Okay, so I want to hit that point right here. Okay, what is the gospel? Right? It's the good news that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection broke the curse of death and set about the restoration of all creation. And, and death is the rendering, the separation of the body from the spirit. That's what happens in death. It's not how things were intended to be. And if the gospel does not encounter people's physical bodies, then it's a sterile gospel. And a sterile gospel is a false gospel if our concern for people's and if in our concern for people's physical bodies we don't ache for them to know and love Jesus to experience an encounter with him as their lord and savior then that's also a sterile gospel and i would argue that you probably don't really appreciate how horrific darkness and poverty and suffering is because it is especially these friends that we want to experience this sweet comfort and love that can only be found in Christ. And so we can let theologians sit in rooms all day debating which false gospel is better, but for us to be faithful churches, for us to be faithful people, we need the whole gospel. We need the Jesus who proclaimed in Luke 4 that he has come because the spirit of the Lord was on him. He had come to anoint, to be anointed, to proclaim the good news to the poor. Jesus was sent to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind and to set the oppressed free. This was the good news that Jesus came to preach. And it's what his whole ministry was about. And that's the Jesus that we're called to close very to, to that we are called to follow very closely behind. And we're gonna know best how to follow Jesus, especially in these ways, by having brothers and sisters around us who've experienced the things that this poor widow had experienced, and that's part of why Christ sat his disciples down to watch her. Number two, we need to be a people who give like the vulnerable. So if you can look at verse uh, 42. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, "Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on." So what does it look like for us to give out of our poverty? So I think at this point some of the easiest things I could do and I get these questions almost after every uh, every time I talk about Something related to the theme of, of living with this radical generosity. Some of us in this room are like to-do list people. That's not me. I wish it was a little bit. But like, we want, like, what's the box? Like, where are the lines? How do we color in them? What's the box we're supposed to check? And the easiest thing I could tell you, I could do for you, is to convince you that you're supposed to sell everything right now and go live in poverty. That's an easy thing to check. Check off. Yep, I did it. No, I didn't. For others of you in this room, it would be great if I spiritualized it and explained how we had to be poor of spirit. And this isn't really about our material possessions or how we live our life, but it's more about our spiritual makeup and if we're kind of living with the same heart and meekness that poor people live. But both of those dichotomies really get us off the hook from the question that's being posed to us through, through Mark in this story he's saying something really profound and really difficult. The poor widow, without even knowing it, is about to have a a really sweet teaching moment, and a pretty complex one at that. Her affection for God and actions of generosity become a shaping moment for all who call ourselves disciples of Jesus. As she practices her faith in this public space, her life is posing a question to those of us as we watch? What does it mean to give out of our poverty? What does it look like to give all we have to live on? These questions are meant to be disruptive to to the disciples of Jesus, who'd already given up everything. And they're meant to be disruptive to us 2,000 years later. They're complex and complicated questions. These are difficult questions if you're living in poverty. Because the truth is, the widow's widow's situation was unjust. She shouldn't have been in this situation. There were laws intended to protect her and keep her from being so depleted. And this is a difficult question if you're sitting in this room as a middle-class, privileged American who literally giving up all you have to live on not only would be almost impossible, it might conflict a little bit with other scriptures about being wise stewards and providing for your family. So to give like the widow gave, what does it look like to have a love for God that is so great that she would give up everything? What does it look like for us to have a trust and a dependency that is so complete that we would give everything? What does it look like to give all we have to God? So an illustration that kind of comes to my mind as I think about this is going back to the garden, Right? Adam and Eve, when they sinned against God, when they rebelled against God, they instantly felt what? Shame. Why? They were naked. What did they do? Yeah. cover themselves with fig leaves. Right? They grabbed something that was good, It was part of God's good creation. These leaves that were intended to bring shade and beauty were good gifts, and they grabbed them And they use their creative minds that God had given them to create clothing, to cover themselves. And we do this all the time. Good gifts, as we encounter kind of our nakedness and we have this fear of being exposed, we grab these good gifts and we cover ourselves with fig leaves. But a lot of us don't just have fig leaves. We also have layers and layers of fine linen robes draped over us. We have so many layers that we don't ever really have to worry about being naked and ashamed. But yet, it's kind of still always there right underneath. So what are the things in your life that you've come to depend on, to cling to, that you're afraid to let go of? And what, what of those layers, the fig leaves, that God is asking you to release so that you can have this type of radical generosity that the widow had? The widow from the start only had a few fig leaves left to cover her. The poor are often exposed and vulnerable in a way that exposes the very same things that lay under the ones, those of us who have fine, fine linen draped over us. Okay, the same brokenness is there if we were to all strip things away. But for the poor and the vulnerable, it's often right out there for the whole world to see and judge. Okay, and, and just again, I I'm not, I, it's really important uh, to say that I'm not wanting to glorify poverty. I mean, our, our brothers and sisters should not be exposed to the cold of night while we're baking in warm winter clothes. But the illustration Jesus gives us is that if anyone had a right to hold on to her last two fig leaves, it was this widow. And yet she freely gave them. So God asks each of us to spend our life taking off these clothes, stripping off these fig leaves, handing these gifts back to him in worship. And here's a truth I know that happens again and again as we walk through this process in our life, is that he does this for our own good. Because in Jesus, we no longer have to stand before God naked and ashamed. Jesus died and rose again to destroy that curse, to take away that fear of having to be in shame before God. And yet we fear this full exposure before God because we don't understand that we have been cloaked in Christ, that there is no more fear. We don't have to worry about exposure. And so this process of learning how to give out of our poverty is one in which we're saying that we are not going to keep even one leaf to cover ourselves up. We're not, we are going to trust that Jesus really means that there will be no shame once that last leaf is given away. And this is such a gift. Because it is, it is Christ inviting us in to being known by God. That is what wholly changes us from the inside out. To be intimately known and still loved by God. To be freed from fear and shame and guilt. It's to be fully liberated from the bonds of slavery. He looks at the nakedness and the scars and the marred body. And he says, it's good. It's beautiful. And I'm making all things anew. You know, Mark writes this detail that she gave two small coins. And I think this is a really important detail because she could have easily given one and held on to the other. And that would have been a pretty significant gift. Like if you gave 50% of your possessions, that would be a pretty significant gift. If anyone could have held on to one last coin, it was her. But she gave it all. And so no one can look at you and tell you what it looks like to give all you have to Jesus. But it is a question that should unsettle us. It's something that we should be asking over and over and over again. It should shape our prayers and our questions to God. And God is always going to reveal it to us through a gentle, kind, and gracious disruption. So if this question feels um, angst-ridden to you, or um, there's guilt and shame attached, that's not the voice of God. That's not your Father's voice. But the question, and as God reveals it to you in this gentle, kind, and gracious disruption, He does that for our delight. And so, as I, I'm going to ask some questions just to kind of provoke some thoughts and get our question, get our own mind imagining what that looks like. But the answers that you come up with shouldn't be shoulds and should nots, right? The Spirit is asking for our delight and good pleasure. Okay, this, these are offerings. He was pointing to an offering, a free will gift that she laid. On the altar. And so these are things that are not about moralism. And those of us who really struggle with maybe legalism, like like check our hearts. These are these are things that are a delight to do, and it's part of our communion and fellowship with God. So a, a couple of thoughts. What does it look like to be more intentional about how to directly steward your vocation on behalf of the vulnerable? Okay, not just give money from your income, like a tithe or write a a check to a nonprofit, but to consider the gifts of your actual vocation itself to steward for the poor. Okay, so if you're in real estate, or if you're a pastor, or if you are um, working in the food service industry, or if you are a full-time homemaker, what does it look like to consider our vocation, a piece of it, small piece of it, to be stewarded for the vulnerable. What does it look like to give that thing that you're kind of gripping onto because the thought of letting it go terrifies you? Or maybe the thought of others knowing about it cripples you. What does it look like to surrender that to God as your offering? What does it look like to give 100% of our marriage or 100% of our children or 100% of our singleness, or 100% of our infertility to God as an offering, as our gift to him? Maybe what are the things that you're ashamed to give to God? I mean, can you imagine the courage it took this woman in the midst of wealthy people dropping in loud coins, making a show, to go and humbly put in two small coins The shame of having something so little and so insignificant to give in the midst of people who are watching and looking and sizing up the the real gifts of significance. What are the parts of your story that you attempt to hide from God because you don't think it's worthy of giving over? What does it look like to open that up to him? My point in some of these questions is that the idea of giving out of our generosity has implications for every single area of our life. It is one that we should be asking the Spirit's help in daily to show us how do we give all that we have to live on? How does our dependency to live on Christ, like how, is that, how does that happen, God? What do you need to strip? How do I become more and more fully dependent on you for everything? You know, the poverty of being wealthy is that you can go your entire life without depending on God for your daily bread. There are seasons um, in our life, though, that kind of help connect us a little bit to that type of suffering that most of this world, most of the poor in this world experience. So things like maybe the death of a loved one, or maybe encountering cancer or personal sickness, divorce, These crisis moments kind of put us back in touch with how fragile life is and and kind of shows us that we really are these these frail human beings. And the gift of vulnerability is this opportunity to have utter dependency on Christ. So what would our families look like or our church communities or our neighborhoods or this great city look like if we were all people who gave out of our poverty and all we had to live on? So this is one of the things I really want us to leave asking ourselves and taking time this weekend to kind of pause and reflect a little bit and ask the Spirit's help and kind of t- and talk about that next week in your surge table. What are the things that you specifically are being called at this season to surrender to God as an offering? All right, and then number three, our last point. We need to be people who speak with and for the vulnerable. So I shared earlier that the widow's life and offering was this teaching moment, this shepherding moment, where she's illustrating through her actions to Jesus, to, the, to sorry, to the followers of Jesus, what true worship looks like. But her gift was also prophetic. And what I mean by that is she wasn't doing something um, that her, it wasn't just her gift that was so significant. It was that her gift was starkly contrasted against the injustices that were happening and that Jesus was condemning. So let's go up. We're going to actually jump up to the first couple verses before her story, to verse 38. And as he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. And they have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers these men will be punished most severely. There's a ton of reading you can do to unpack the way that the temples were set up to exploit the poor and ostracize the Gentiles. And a lot of commentators debate the question whether or not Jesus is really acknowledging the widow's offering or instead critiquing the temple's practices of injustices against the poor. But I I think it's pretty fair to say that both are happening here. You see, the powerful and religious rulers of the time were acting so unjustly in their treatment of widows. The religious leaders' um, actions, though, of of injustice, their failure to live up to what God had called them to do as leaders of God's people, their failure to act on behalf of these widows that that the the prophets and and the law called them to do, does not cancel out the offering of this widow, Right, like no matter how um, loud a cry of injustice is, or an action of violence, that does not cancel out the soft whisper of this widow's gift. You know, just to, I'm, I'm going to use an example from the civil rights movement um, that I've been reflecting on a lot because I think so often when we look at history, we look for the loud splashes, the heroic moments. But most of human history, where God's people acted and did what was right and obeyed him, like, history doesn't know those stories. Most people kind of had this, um, this their, their lives kind of quelched out by human history. Like, God saw it, God knows. But there's not m- most of the stories that end up making it and getting passed down generation to generation, um, you know, are far and few between. So just a few generations ago, black men hung from trees, lynched. Black women were beaten. Black teenagers and children were pompleted with fire hoses. And this was a consequence of their humble practice of Christianity. They gave all that they had to give like this poor widow gave in order in order to keep in step with the gospel. And their payment was to have their life snuffed out. Right? Men and women would walk to church by these hanging bodies on Sundays, dressed in beautiful clothes, purses filled, ready to contribute to the offering plate. Many believe that those people got what was coming to them. Did the unjust acts or the evil or the oppression drown out the offering of the life given by these brothers and sisters, many of whom we will never know the names of. You know, they hung as this prophetic witness to God's people to be a faithful church. And they cried out for justice on behalf of their brothers and sisters. You know, Jesus in this passage is speaking boldly against injustice, but that wasn't enough. His words calling out the, religi- the religious leaders for acting unjustly Were so powerful. But he waited for this prophetic moment to contrast what was true over and against what was false. The widow's radiant humility is contrasted against their dark pride. The beautiful aroma of her gift is contrasted against the stench of theirs. The sound of her coins represent complete and total generosity is contrasted against the echoes of their gift of abundance which really meant nothing to God. Because offering is always tied to obedience, and and obedience demands sacrifice. So there can be no true offering without sacrifice. So as we think about what it looks like to not just live like the vulnerable and and to give this with this type of generosity, but to look for ways, not to just call out what's broken and wrong, but to point to what is beautiful and good not to just look to positions of power and heroic stories, but to ask God to give you eyes to see all these ordinary men and women doing small acts of courageous love and kindness, and for that to be the the things that begin to teach us and shape us as God's people. What does it look like to use our voice to speak with the vulnerable the way that Jesus spoke with the widow? You see, the disciples would not have been able to see her Had he not used his voice, they would have been deaf and blind to her gift. And so he was able to see, and he didn't ignore their blindness, but used his voice to explain to them what was actually going on. How do we do that as God's people? How do we not disconnect from folks who maybe um, don't see and use our voice to amplify, to explain, to show the beauty that's unfolding in front of us? You know, God became man to identify with us, to be among us. Jesus spoke up on behalf of the widow against the injustices happening around her because he identified with her, and he identifies with us. We are not called to solve things for the vulnerable in our city. We are called to walk among them, to love them. We are to look at every vulnerable child as though they are our own. We're to look at women being exploited and abused and objectified as our own sisters. At men suffering and loneliness and incarceration as our own brothers. We are to be with them and speak up with them. Give up our privileges and safety and security in order to expose the darkness around them. To be faithful churches, we must speak with the vulnerable and use our voice to amplify the voice our culture desperately wants to avoid. All right, so as we close tonight, I know I said a lot, and um, there's a lot of different things that we can take away. And each of us have um, different— different applying this passage is going to look different for each of us. Some of us, there really is a, sm- a small area of our life that we need to slow down and make a relational connection. All right, maybe, maybe it's the homeless man who sits outside your coffee shop on Thursday mornings when you go in. And it's taking time to learn his name and ask him how you can pray for him and buying him a cup of coffee. Right? Maybe for some of us, it's, it's rethinking our kids' nap time and asking what it would look like to not look at news headlines as things to be anxious for, but an opportunity to pray for the suffering in our city. Or maybe some of us, God is calling to pick up and move to a neighborhood that most in this city wouldn't want to drive into and make a bunch of amazing friends and plant a church and reach people who don't know Jesus. Right? Like God is God is constantly moving on his people and I think right now in Phoenix one of the things I am most thankful for and most humbled by is to watch as God's church is wrestling with these questions not just as us as individuals in the, in these seats but us as as local churches as city-wide Churches connected to each other. What does it look like for us as the people of God collectively to be faithful to the vulnerable, to the oppressed, to the broken? Whether they're in the womb or 90 years old, dying alone in a nursing home, like what does it look like to really have this passion and care and concern